Hello, I'm your host, Gillian Semler. You're listening to Let's Talk, brought to you by Citilets and Arla Property Mart Scotland. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show for the world of property letting, investment, legislation, personal stories and much more. If you want to get in touch, just reach out. Let's Talk at citilets.co.uk. Today, my guest needs probably a little less introduction than usual. It's Citilets MD Thomas Ashdown, who I finally managed to track down to talk about Citilets as it hits its 21st birthday milestone this weekend. Welcome, Thomas. Uh, morning, Gillian. Thanks for the invite. You're welcome. Now, Citilets was founded in 1999, some 21 years ago. Can you tell our listeners, you know, what led you to take the plunge and set up your own business? Did you have an IT background? Because I know you had a medical background. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I did start off at uh, medical school in around about 1990. Um, I didn't have an IT background. Um, I moved through various faculties at the university uh, trying to find uh, what it is I wanted to do. And I think I ended up in the law faculty eventually, um, but then proceeded to use absolutely none of what I'd learned over the previous seven years and, and set up City Let's. Um, I, I wouldn't say that it was a particularly conscious decision uh, to set up a business. I think. Uh, funny enough, um, you know, what I wanted to do in life actually found me. Um, I was spending a lot of time at university um, trying to find good accommodation, and I just thought it was all a bit ridiculous, um, having to walk around notice boards, uh, look through newspapers. Uh, you know, you'd phone up a letting agency back in those days, and if you were lucky, the promised uh, property list would arrive about three days later by post. Uh, it would have no photographs in it. And it was all very inefficient, and I genuinely felt that it was interfering with my studies. Um, I just thought it was all very inefficient, and uh, it was 1995, 96, and the internet was just beginning to become a, a thing uh, here in the UK. Um, certainly in the universities, there was quite a good uh, amount of internet availability. Um, because back then there really wasn't much uh, internet penetration in residential homes. Um, so the internet was was kicking around and uh, I had a friend who was working in New York. Um, he was a very early uh, adopter uh, and uh, investor in internet businesses. So we just had a chance conversation um, and it just seemed to me that um, it might be an idea if we could probably as I would then think about it, if we could just simply get all the information in one place uh, on the internet and get it distributed. Um, those were the kind of thought processes that were, were going through my head. It was all a very, very basic uh, notion. But it wasn't actually City Labs that we set up. Um, I left in 1997 and set up um, a, a company. Well, it was more of an idea than a company. Um, I think the ambition was to make it a company. But really, you know, th these were really very, very early days of the web. And, you know, th there weren't any business models to follow uh, in, here in the UK. But I thought it'd be a good idea if we could have a website that um, serves students to provide uh, access to not just accommodation, but also jobs and I think there was something else. Um, but uh, we were just too early um, and I had no experience in business, no connections, and we weren't really uh, capitalized. So I spent two years on unique services um, 
between 1997 and 1999, and eventually realized, having not raised an invoice over that, or, or even <laughs> thought about raising an invoice over that two-year period, that I wasn't really providing much of a service at all, and perhaps that was the only unique thing about the business. Um, and um, so reluctantly, I uh, was threw in the towel on that, but something um, about the accommodation side seemed to be the part of the, that business that we could possibly you know, raise from the ashes. So not long after that, um, I was just on a bus and I just, I just remember thinking, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to take the property part of that, that student venture and uh, we're going to call it City Lets and uh, we'll, we'll give it a go. And it was around about that time I'd met a couple of people because uh, anyone in business knows that you, you don't get anywhere by yourself. You, you've got to have uh, a team around you. And I was very fortunate that I'd met um, two people in particular, um, Tim, Dr. Tim Kempster and uh, Mark Goundry, around about that time. And as everyone knows, they've uh, had a, uh, an input, uh, an instrumental input in, into the company right the way back from 1999. So um, I wouldn't exactly say that I was employing anyone at that time, but um, they did some contract work to help get the website together. And really, from about 1999 um, to 2003, it was still very much um, a one-man band uh, type situation. But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, I suppose, in answer to your question, did I have an IT background? No, I had a, a very disparate background, um, but in a very funny uh, roundabout way, it led uh, to the founding of CityLets. Okay, well, I'm guessing obviously the tech environment has changed just a little since then. So, can you describe it? You know, what was it like setting up a web business in those days? Um, well, I think the truth is it was very, very frustrating. Um, it was a very slow, uncertain um, period. Uh, it was coming up to the millennium. Um, it was just a very, um, you know, probably the best way to put it is uh, it wasn't a very elegant 3-0, you know, cup final victory for AC Milan. I'd describe it more like a, a one-all grind of a draw on a cold, wet January day in League <laughs> Division 2. You know, it, was, it, was, um, it wasn't glamorous mm -hmm. uh, at all um, because fundamentally uh, we were trying to put together something and trying to create... Uh, a, a reality from a vision where we didn't really have the language to describe and there wasn't the infrastructure to support the vision. So, you know, I remember in the early days it was as someone who didn't have an IT background, I was suddenly, you know, down at the newsagents buying all the, the IT magazines, you know, the internet and, and trying to understand what the internet was about. Um, so, I mean, it was a very slow development. Um, even starting in 1999, we were almost too early because you can't have an internet business unless people have got internet in their houses. And that very, very basic, perhaps in hindsight, very obvious fundamental was not obvious to me because we were so busy on the actual product. So we were nearly too early um, to create what um, the investment community will call the all-important product market fit. Um, and certainly there were many times where I feared I was wasting even more years of my life. And I think one of the things that gets you through uh, when you are starting your own company or, or pushing in a new space is that the more time that you actually spend in that space, the, the less able or willing you are to give up um, 
it's kind of the rising balloon phenomena, you know, if you've held on and you're, you're, you're mm-hmm. still on holding on when you're high up, you know, you, you need to keep holding on. And I think at one point that was probably the determining factor that kept me going because I had put so much work into it. Um, and I was, I suppose, uh, at, its, at its core, I was, I was afraid for all these efforts to come to nothing. Um, so I suppose that was the stick side of things, but the carrot side was that certainly by 2002, 2003, it was pretty clear that the internet was going to become part of uh, our lives. And I, I, had a, I had a belief that it would work. And um, I suppose that's the thing that keeps, that keeps you going um, through, through the tough times, because it was several years before we were actually able to say to the letting agent community that we think we have a product of value and we would like to get paid um, because up to that point it was still the newspapers. Um, so, yeah, it was a, a very um, it was a very uncertain and unsure time. Um, it was before mobiles, before the internet, uh, or before the internet being a, a, a widespread phenomena. It was just. Um, good old-fashioned, pick up the phone directory um, and basically work your way, you know, through A to Z, calling up people, trying to spread the word about what you think what the world was going to be. Okay, so what have been the greatest challenges then along the way? Um, I think business is constantly challenging in different ways. Um, I think I would find it really, really difficult to to pinpoint uh, what the greatest challenge would be. Uh, there is so much to know. Um, if you even knew that when you set out in business, that would be something. But you just don't know what you need to know. And I certainly find that uh, very challenging. Um, as I sit here today, 21 years on, um, what do I find most challenging? Um, I think from a rounder perspective, uh, I think the most challenging thing has probably been able to find a way of maintaining balance in your overall life, um, serving the business, uh, being there for your family, uh, you know, looking after home. Um, and at this time, I would say the greatest challenge is, is ensuring that you do find that balance. Because I think that anyone who sets up their own business in any sector will know that you've got to be uber committed in the early years to get some kind of critical momentum and get get things moving forward. And my experience of that is that you've got to be all in to that one part of your life. And that's not sustainable in the long term. And I I think as as I've gone on uh, over the years, I think it's become more consciously important to me to get that balance right. Um, And I think that is one of the greatest challenges of any business. Okay, well, a lot has changed technically, but what other things in business do you think have changed, you know, for the better and, and for the worse? Um, I think the, the change in the business community over the past 20 years um, has been <clears throat> overwhelmingly positive, I would say. Um, I, I certainly felt when we started out that... Um, over and above the license for young tech companies to be a bit haywire and out there, I still felt that generally um, there was a lack of humanity um, allowed within the business four walls. 
you were expected to come in and you know you leave your complete life and your personality at the door and you know and and come in and get on with your job and it was all very nine to five ish and and whilst it's important that businesses do still remain run as businesses um I think it's great that there's much more scope for people to be human beings and to be treated um, as human beings in their day-to-day -day life um, at work. And I think that's fantastic because I certainly felt initially it was all very much, you've got to treat people in a very objective, I'm the boss kind of fashion. And that's just not really what we've ever been about. And I think as time has gone on, I think... Um, the business culture as well certainly the parts of the business culture that I'm involved in I feel it's become much more in tune with how things should be um, you've got to work hard that that's always going to be the case there's got to be discipline but you know it's got to be a nice place to go um, in the morning it's got to be a nice place to work because let's mm -hmm. face it you know you spend a lot of your time there well I think on the downside I think um, it's important that we don't go too far down that road. You've got to tread the right line. Um, it's got to be a disciplined but personal, you know, um, uh, operation. I think it's great uh, that social entrepreneurism uh, has become a real thing. It's got a name. It's it's not just on the fringes. It's uh, it's mainstream. It's it's not just accepted. It's encouraged. I mean, this is absolutely fantastic. Things like Social Bite, you know, uh, coming out of Edinburgh of all mm -hmm. places. You know, it's these kind of people uh, who've been pioneering these kind of endeavours and it's made social entrepreneurism uh, mainstream. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. But now, Citylights used to network with other brands until 2012. <coughs> so, you know, what changed? Um, yeah, um, yeah, we used to run a network um, from around 2003 to, I think it was 2012. Mm -hmm. um, and... The idea behind the network was really to give um, our customers um, access to one point where they could effectively get all over the web so for their property listings. And so from their perspective, the idea was to represent a one-stop shop, and it made a lot of sense because, you know, data feeds only really came in, um, I don't know, 2006, 7, 8, 9. For many years, most customers were uploading through a manual property-by-property -property basis. And it was very time consuming. So it made sense um, to, uh, to our customers that if we offered a network, it would save them a lot of time. But also from the, um, the network of portals, uh, it also made sense because, you know, we were all still working out, you know, what it was to be an online business. And invariably, what you would find is you would have um, one brand would be strong in one area and another brand would be strong in, in a different area. And it, it, it was very difficult for any one internet company to go all over Scotland uh, with a sales team and, uh, and have a realistic expectation of being successful. So I was able to persuade um, other uh, network, uh, other brands and that we should operate as a network. And so it made sense from both sides of the coin. Um, but I think when we got to 2010, 2011, 2012, um, the model started to break down. That's just my point of view. Um, because it, it, was a, it was an interesting situation because on the one hand, we were all part of the same network. But on the other hand, we were all competitors. Mm -hmm. 
And there was no doubt about it, every brand in that network wanted to be the dominant brand. So you could argue that it was um, a group of frenemies um, operating together for, for, for short-term gain. But everyone in that brand, sorry, every, everyone in that network, you know, was looking for the first opportunity to feel confident enough to break away and, uh, and operate independently. I suppose you could liken it to um, swimming uh, in, in, a, in a pool with armbands and then deciding that, you know what, you don't need these armbands anymore, let's just, let's just throw them off and um, you know, let's just see if we can swim by ourselves. So this all came to head in 2012, I think in particular, when the London-based companies we felt were no longer just looking to be uh, prominent in their local area, we felt um, that it was their ambition to become prominent also in Scotland. So it just didn't make sense for us to be working with companies um, who originally we would look to to get our clients' uh, exposure in, in England, for example. It didn't make sense for us to do that if they were also going to eye up Scotland um, and try and compete with us in our own backyard. And there was always tensions in the network, but by 2012, for me, the, the writing was, was very much on the wall. And the uh, excuse me, the end of the the network era was, was uh, it, it was over. So it wasn't the easiest decision, um, but we think it was the right decision. Uh, the two don't always go hand in hand. Well, I know obviously well, from working here that Satellites feels it has an important role in helping to maintain healthy portal competition in the marketplace here in Scotland. Do you feel this as well understood though outside the office walls? Um, I think it is reasonably well understood in certain parts of the country. I think it's very well understood in, in Edinburgh and Glasgow and Aberdeen um, in particular. We, we feel that um, Scotland has, to some degree, always had quite a lot of portal choice. So it never as much fully understood the problem of what life looks like if there wasn't choice. So if you look to, to England over the last few years, um, certainly 2015, 2016, the market was absolutely dominated by two single players. And the situation seemed to have become so untenable that um, it obviously spawned uh, on the market. Uh, and on the market for us was the very embodiment of the problem that never really existed here in Scotland because there was choice not just with city lets um, and, and, and other lettings portals, but also the local solicitor property centers. So we very much welcomed the emergence of On The Market because we felt that it embodied more elegantly what we've always tried to explain was that online, th there's a very strong tendency um, to monopoly and duopoly um, much more than the high street, although interestingly the online monopoly and duopolies uh, are now starting to arguably threaten the high street. Um, so we, we very much welcomed on the market because it was our opportunity to say, look, um, yes, first and foremost, we're here to provide a service and we aim to compete uh, and do a good job. But by the way, you know, this is what the world looks like if there isn't property portal choice. Um, and of course, all the agents in England, uh, to some degree, try to kind of get together to create uh, on the market. There does seem to be a, a tendency for markets to consolidate around one big player. You just got to look at Google for search or Amazon. 
Um, and I think it's probably worth at least being aware of, um, of that possibility. Well, I know, you know, obviously you're very passionate about Citylets as a Scottish portal and using local suppliers. So can you tell us why local economy is so important to you? Yeah, I mean, I suppose um, as a local business, um, we, we, we do just operate in, in, in the Scottish borders, um, sort of the borders of Scotland, <laughs> as, as opposed to the Scottish borders. I like to be better at the Scottish borders, by the way, but, uh, you know, uh, that's an area for development. Uh, but, um, yeah, uh, as, a, as a company that operates purely in Scotland, yeah, you know, perhaps it suits us a little to, you know, to believe in this. But the facts are also there to support our views. Um, I read a very interesting stat. Uh, <laughs> Probably true, I don't know, but it's it certainly seen from a very plausible source. But it was basically saying that for every one pound that is spent in the local economy, um, up to four times more of that gets recycled in the local economy in other expenditure than if uh, that pound is spent beyond the, the, the national borders. So it's pretty obvious that if you buy local, um, you are, in effect, uh, reinvesting in the fabric of the society that cloaks you. Um, and I think that one of the great things that's happened over the last 10 years uh, is there's been a huge shift in awareness of that. And uh, there are plenty of local business movements. And uh, it, it just makes a lot of sense to me as a human being and also as a local business owner. Absolutely. Well, outside of CityLets, you're involved with the startup scene. Do you have any advice for someone listening who is thinking of starting a tech or online business? From a development point of view, uh, I think study what CityLets did and then do the absolute opposite. <laughs> Just do the opposite. Uh, we, uh, we grew organically. And we were born in an era where there was an opportunity for that to happen. We bootstrapped our way up. We had this very old-fashioned idea that if you have an idea, realize the vision, take it to market, see if people buy it, see if you can actually make it a profitable endeavor, and then look to scale it. You know, call me nuts, but you know that's 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 what we thought <laughs> business was. But um, that's not how it works in tech um, now. And whether it's an online business or, or more, more generically a tech business, um, I think the, the, it's really, really important that you get, you, you've got to get your idea, you've got to get your proof of concept, but equally important, you've got to connect yourself uh, with um, capital very, very quickly um, and get people onto your board, however casual that board may be. Um, basically find some people with grey or no hair and, and get, them on, get them on your team and get them mm -hmm. on fast because the world is so competitive now. One of the fantastic things about the internet is that it has, it has created this fantastically efficient connection between ideation um, of new ideas and, uh, and businesses, but also capital. And on the plus side, it's wonderful for efficiency, but on the downside, you need to know that if you're going into business with any idea in any sector, anywhere, uh, there's going to be other people thinking and looking at the same thing. So I think it was Reid Hoffman, uh, one of the, the founders or early uh, investors in LinkedIn, uh, I think he coined the phrase uh, blitz scaling. 
So it's not even about just, you know, uh, doing a raise and then maybe do another raise. You know, you've got to get in, you know, one, two, three, four, get scale, 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 scale. Get up out of the blocks, uh, get known, get established, get scale. Um, because if you don't, someone else will and all your endeavor is going to, unfortunately, uh, not be enough. So my advice is um, use the internet to connect yourself very early with the uh, angel networks uh, in particular um, and just generally make sure that you've got good advice because you're going to need it. Right. Well, um, one of your outside interests is nascent blockchain tech. So what is it about this that caught your imagination? Um, yeah, it was actually Bitcoin initially. Um, it was a fascinating thing. Um, it's riding high in the charts again, uh, I hear this week. Um, but it was a whole Bitcoin phenomena, the, um, the digital money of the future for the libertarian class. But fundamentally, it was the technology behind it that I thought was very interesting. Because ultimately, really, uh, blockchain is, I suppose, it's a technology that allows for um, information to be securely shared um, between disparate parties. And, um, and it effectively allows for the positives of information to be shared in a very secure way that doesn't rely on the trust of uh, human beings. It's all peer-to-peer. -peer. Um, once the system or any particular blockchain is set in motion, it, it effectively looks after itself. And, and the idea is that uh, it's, I suppose, in essence, it's a new way for information to be shared uh, in a collaborative way that maintains security protocols uh, to the degree of interest of you know, each participating party. And, and fundamentally, I think it's going to allow for a lot of very positive things to happen. Um, when we look at, for example, Estonia, um, uh, people may be surprised to, to know that this small European country is a, is a global leader in blockchain technology. And my understanding is that, uh, for example, um, a lot of their health services are, are fundamentally administered on a blockchain uh, system, which is all part and parcel of the National E-Citizenship Programme. And I think uh, the opportunities uh, for efficiency of running public services is very exciting uh, and very realistic. And in this ever seemingly cash-strapped world for the public services um, in, in, in Scotland and really in most countries, I think, let's face it, public bodies always feel they could do with, with more money. but. Um, I think it's a very interesting technology because uh, no doubt it will be used for nefarious purposes as well. That's inevitably always the case. Um, but there is just fantastic scope for this to be used in a very positive way that will benefit society. And I think that's something uh, definitely to be aimed for. And what about this technology and property? There, there are definitely opportunities for blockchain technology to create efficiencies uh, in the property sector. In particular, I think there's some exciting opportunities um, for sales transactions, but that's some way down the line. But yes, um, it's not remotely uh, out of the question that property sales, um, the, the conveyancing process is going to be uh, hugely more efficient in the future. Now, just moving on. I've been digging into your past. It was in rowing. It was quite a large part of your life, um, mm -hmm. which I didn't know. So can you tell, tell me a little bit more about this? And, and did it actually prepare you for business? Um, 
yeah, it, it was a very large part of my life, um, up to my mid-twenties. And it was a wonderful counterweight uh, to academic uh, efforts. I find at that time it was the best way to balance, um, you know, the requirements of, of academia. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it, it was a wonderful, wonderful sport to get into. And um, I was very, very lucky, genuinely very lucky that the rowing at my school at that time um, was, um, well, how do I put this? Um, we rowed in a, a school, a schoolboy eight, and um, the the front four of the team um, had won the All-Ireland National Fours Championships the year before, but they were still young enough to come back. So they formed the front part of our, of our boat, and it was just the most wonderful experience to be able to go around uh, the country and uh, basically win. Mm -hmm. um, and it just created um, a really positive, you know, life is great era, I think, um, mm -hmm. which I was able to take forward uh, into university. Um, I chose Nottingham um, for medical school specifically because um, that's where the National Water Sports um, uh, and, and Rowing Centre is held. Uh, it's also got the River Trent, which was just the most wonderful river to row on. I mean, you could row for miles out on that river. Oh, it was wide. It was a nice, smooth. It wasn't a particularly fast-flowing river, and you could row all afternoon. Perfect. And, um, so we enjoyed that a great deal. Um, as regards preparing for business, one hundred percent. I mean, rowing in some ways is a is an ultimate team sport because you've just got to be utterly tuned in and doing exactly what everyone else is doing in the boat at the same time. And it gives you a real sense of camaraderie, and um, that is definitely something um, you know that we like to take forward uh, into business and into city lets. Um, I think also what's, I, what I took from rowing, which I thought was very helpful for business, is just um, the sheer brutal reality that there's no hiding from uh, the fact that you will get out what you put in. Uh, in a rowing boat, if you don't put in if you don't perform, if you don't make the effort, when you step out of that boat, you know whether or not you did your best. And there's no hiding from it. And um, I like that kind of brutal simplicity in those kind of sports, whether it's running or rowing. Um, you will get out what you put in and uh, there's no excuses. And, and I love that. It's just beautifully simple. Now, Elizabeth told me you competed at a high level and, and quite the regular at the old Henley Royal Regatta. As I say, I was part of a very, very successful schoolboy crew mm -hmm. and we were invited to, to Rowan Henley uh, that year, um, it was the 150th year, right. uh, it was just a fantastic occasion. I, I know that there'll be, you know, people who, who might think it's, you know, for only for a certain part of society, but I tell you what, as a schoolboy, it is a fantastic week away. I can <laughs> you know? imagine. And, uh, and then a couple of the university crews. Um, were also invited uh, that I was part of to, to row and I uh, also coached crews um, and took one to, to Henley as well and um, so yeah no very very fond memories and unfortunately it's not been there for, for quite a number of years. I think my rowing days they finished probably about 20 years ago so it's quite a long time ago now. Okay. But the well, memories are still there. <laughs> <laughs> well 
it seems, while I was doing my research, I actually found um, that you've been keeping some secrets from staff. I heard a bit, a, a bit of an impressive fact. I understand <laughs> that your mum, this is actually about your mum, but it's a very interesting fact, so I wanted to bring it in. Okay. Your mum founded what is now, I think it's, I think it's the equivalent to Screen Scotland, um, she founded the Northern Ireland Film and Television Council, which... Um, is responsible for the development of the industry in the province where Game of Thrones, no less, was mm -hmm. produced. Yeah. Is this true? Yeah, 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 it's true. Uh, yeah, um, wow, okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, I'd add in some, yeah, um, some interesting facts. Well, yeah, I mean, my mum my was the, um, she was the head of English and drama at the local teaching college. Um, and as a wee side thing, she set up uh, something that's still going today. It's called Cinemagic. And it's uh, an, an onboarding ramp into the film industry um, for, for young uh, creative uh, people with an interest in, in the sector. And I'm pretty sure that's still going 30, 35 years uh, on. Um, but I think where that led to was she set up... Um, this was 1980s in Belfast, um, and uh, she set up uh, a theatrical agency, the, the Jan Ashdown Theatrical Agency. And on the side, um, she was she represented actors um, uh, and represented them to the uh, the then growing. In particular, it was film at that time more than television. Right. So she ran the actors' agency. Uh, she that then evolved into tapping into European funding to develop um, the arts. Uh, so she tapped into that and created what was then called the Northern Ireland Film Commission. Um, and then over time, uh, as, uh, as things can do, uh, it grew arms and legs. And uh, goodness me, 30-odd years on, uh, you know, it became uh, the Film and Television Council. Um, and yes, it is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, when things like Game of Thrones end up being filmed in Northern Ireland yes. um, as, as a result of, you know, arguably that, uh, I guess, that acorn. And it's genuinely really exciting. And, you know, it's also really nice that some of the actors that were part of my mum's agency from the 80s were actually in Game of Thrones. So I think you have, um, I think it was Ian McElhinney uh, was Sir, Sir Barristan mm -hmm. uh, in, in Game of Thrones and it was great to see him, uh, I think, up until, I think, Series 5. And, and as far as you know, I mean, was gender an issue for women back in the, in the 1980s? You know, how did you cope with that? Um, yes, uh, unquestionably yes. Uh, she was a single mum, English, uh, in Northern Ireland, uh, Thatcher's Britain, um, it was, you know, obviously a very difficult time. I think there'll be a lot of people um, who may not remember or be aware that the 1980s was a very, very difficult time economically. Um, and obviously, in the backdrop of Northern Ireland, you know, we were still in the process of sorting out um, uh, our, a lot of the troubles. So it was a very difficult environment to operate in. But as a woman in business in, in that um, in that place and time, unquestionably, um, there were uh, difficulties. And certainly, I think uh, she, her gender, being a woman in business at that time, I think was challenging. But I think she, 
I think she actually generally finds some of the situations that she was thrown into genuinely quite funny, genuinely funny to the point that it helped her cope with it. And and I remember one one situation in particular. You know, it's the one where she gets invited up by the old male lodge to present her idea, and she gets presented and walked into this uh, huge room where there's men sitting around, all, you know, for all the corners of the room, and these very old-fashioned, big, long U-shaped tables and being invited to present and, uh, and then uh, politely escorted back out while the men <laughs> deliberated upon the proposals. You know, it was almost like a, uh, a very yeah. unglamorous, staid version of early pop idol, you know. And, <laughs> you know and, and then, you know, she'd be brought back in and be told what the men thought of her ideas. And, you know, but I think mm-hmm. that, well, clearly she must have handled it. Well, finally, Thomas, what do you value most? Um... I absolutely love having the freedom to explore ideas and opportunities and to be working with a group of people that makes it such a pleasant experience. It's like the, um, is it the American Beauty film uh, where at the very end all you hear is the narration from beyond the grave oh, yes, you know, or, yes. where he's going, you know, but uh, what's he say? I'm, but I'm grateful for every single second. Yeah. And there are challenges in business and my gosh, you make mistakes. But you learn and you move on, and it really is about the journey. Um, I think uh, as a young man, maybe it was more about the destination, but for me it is about the journey, um, and it is about having the freedom to explore. Uh, I know I've said that already, but I find that one of the most fantastic things. Yes, there is a lot of humdrum in business, there's a lot of administration, of course there is. but fundamentally you are free we live in a free society where we have these freedoms and you know i'm very much looking forward to within the context and and related to city lights uh, exploring more more business ideas it, it's wonderful well thomas thank you for finally coming on let's talk to speak to me thank you nah, it's been a pleasure thanks Jim. i'm jillian semmer thanks for listening If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to subscribe to the Let's Talk channel on all the usual platforms, including Spotify, iTunes and SoundCloud, as well as on citylets.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And also let your friends know where to find us. Let's Talk is a dedicated property show providing insight into the world of property letting. More information on today's show can always be found on our show notes along with this podcast. If you want to get in touch, just reach out. Let's talk at citylets.co.uk.